I'll just a few things by introduction here. Um, I got to know Dr. Lloyd a couple years ago when I took a class at Kent State Stark as a senior guest student. Most of you are aware of that program, and it's a wonderful program. I would encourage any of you scholars to, to take a look at that, that program, and most of the state schools and many private schools have the same type of a program. You go without paying anything, and you don't get any credit for the courses, but I have found all of the teachers and professors have will treat you like an ordinary student and grade your papers and allow you to take tests if you want to do all the assignments. Uh, when I was in Dr. Lloyd's class, which was basically a, a class on rhetoric and, and argument, uh, I did most of the assignments. There were a few assignments I didn't prefer to do, so I just didn't do them. But he didn't hold that against me, and uh, he was gracious enough to grade those assignments that I did finish. And uh, we, we kept journals and wrote about our thoughts. He was trying to expand our thinking into looking at our own sense of argument and how we might advance a position in good rhetorical uh, ways. Uh, I'm not going to attempt to tell, us, to tell the class what Dr. Lloyd is going to uh, teach over these next four weeks. I'm not sure he's entirely sure, but, but uh, it's a good thing we didn't over-advertise in, in a specific way because he is going to take us through some sort of a journey here, uh, and we'll let him describe that. For now, let's open with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this hour and for this class. May there be five words. Five words that might edify. The Apostle Paul says that he would rather speak in a tongue where five words were used to edify the body rather than in confusing language that edifies no one. We expect more than five words today and in the next weeks, but may there be at least five. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask Dr. Lloyd a question before he gets into the meat of things. <laughs> Did Jim pass? <laughs> yeah, that's on talk. You should be on. Come on. Yep. Are you hearing it? Yep. I'm here. Yeah. All right, there were so many things I wanted to talk about. That's one of the reasons Jim said he wasn't sure if I was sure what I was going to talk about. <coughs> um, but I decided that church defines itself was a good way to look at it in the sense that, and let me back up. I teach linguistics, and in ling linguistics, you learn something very, very shocking, and in the studying the history of the English language. The history of the English language is, it's not English. <laughs> There's only one-third of words from Anglo-Saxon in what we call English. The rest of them are French, Latin, Greek, some Hebrew. <laughs> you can imagine why those, but also a ton of Viking words, because the Vikings 
And so you were like, why the French? Because the French ruled England for 300 years. We got about a word a year. So about 300 words from French. And we think they're English words, we just think they're spelled oddly, like rouge, why is it spelled that way? <coughs> Which simply means red. Or d'oeuvres. <laughs> or d'oeuvres. Yes, or d'oeuvres. And we, and we use French for fancy things. I seem to be feeding back just a slight bit, I think. Uh, but anyway, when languages meet, uh, the language that we create, that's a simplified language, if you've been in a foreign country, you know what I mean. You speak simple English, they speak simple French or whatever back to you. You kind of strip it down. And this happened to English, that's why we don't have the masculine and feminine neuter articles. It got stripped down. They got left out over time. It was too confusing for Vikings and Jutes and all the other groups of people that were speaking these different languages to do. Okay, what does that have to do with anything? Well, as I'm studying Christian history, I find the same thing happening. That Christians are in an environment where they're trying to convey what they mean to a different language group, so to speak. Am I making any sense? A different religion, a different culture. And so what happens is both sides get a little simplified and both sides begin to use the terminologies of the other side. I don't know if that's happened to you, but I've studied other languages, and when I learn a la something in the other language, I'm like, that's so much better than what we've got, I'm going to take that. Like angst, the German word for fear. But they use it to mean general fear of being alive. And I'm like, hmm, that explains a lot. <laughs> that's a wonderful term. We don't have a term like that in English. And so we find what happens is there's a borrowing of terms, which leads a lot of people to become suspicious, like that Christianity has just stolen everything. But what I see it more now that I've looked at it longer. I see it more as a natural process. What else are you going to do? For instance, Wednesday is Woden's Day. It's named after the god Woden, which is the early Norse form of Odin, which is more familiar to us. Yes? Can we speak of the week without Wednesday? Can we make up a new name for it because it's from another religion? I mean, why would you? Eventually, you just have to go, it's just Wednesday. Yes. <laughs> Thor's day is next. Saturn's day. Freya's day. They're all named for, most of them are named for Norse gods. <coughs> and we'll see the same process happening here. Okay, so I'm going to look particularly at a couple of things. Okay, so the series is considering four historical confluences. And the first I'm going to look at is Easter and Christmas. I really was interested more in Christmas because, of course, it's, and this Sunday, this would be Epiphany. Tomorrow is actually Epiphany, but this would be Epiphany Sunday. So, for one thing, I remember growing up, they would say, this is Epiphany, and I <laughs> no idea what that even meant. <coughs> Second, uh, next week, I want to look at the canonization of Scripture, what made it, and why it made it, and what didn't make it. I don't know if you're familiar with it. My students are always shocked when I show them things like this, lost scriptures. There's, these are 40 uh, gospels, acts, epistles that didn't make it into the New Testament, some of which uh, weren't considered unorthodox. They just didn't make it for one reason or the other. And others that were considered completely unorthodox. That's 40. There are many more than that. <coughs> Then I wanted to look at original sin, the devil, and hell. 
I really don't want to actually. It's not fun at all. But these were key debates in the early Christian church. And I think they kind of went the wrong way in a lot of ways. In some ways they went like original sin, ended up with blaming women. I don't think that was a wise way to go, but that's the way it went. And then uh, that leads naturally into gender and slavery. I wanted to look at gender and slavery because there are many contemporary issues that come up. Um, for instance, now we, can we look and we think, how could the church ever justify slavery? But we know that it did in the past. So it's a good idea to think about that when you're thinking about modern issues that the church is arguing about, that in the past we've taken certain positions, whereas now it looks kind of foolish. And so you have to think, how do these set the bars for thinking about other current controversies? And they're not uncurrent controversies. The issue of gender is still very important right now. All right, so we're going to take a quick look at Easter, mostly because Easter came with a less complicated package. <coughs> You'll understand what that means in a second. <laughs> okay, we know the death and crucifixion of Jesus was central to the early church, but believe it or not, the early church did not specifically celebrate it. Did you know that? There was no Easter. Before the fourth century, Christians celebrated Pascha or Peshach, which is what? Passover. So they just celebrated the Passover along with the Jews and followed the Jewish calendar. They didn't move it, uh, they didn't particularly move it to Sunday formally or uh, in the tradition until later, and we'll see why in a second. And many Christians didn't want to accept the Jewish traditions, um, but so they didn't even want to celebrate it at Peshach. We have to also understand in terms of Christmas. Um, in their culture, only pagan gods were celebrated as their birthdays. Their birthdays were celebrated. So a lot of Christians thought we shouldn't celebrate Jesus' birthday because that makes him kind of equivalent to a pagan god. But Easter was established at the Council of Nicaea in 325, the first council of the church. And you know that's just after it becomes the legal religion of Rome, or about the time that it becomes <coughs> but a lot of people don't know, and what I wanted to look at is that you hear people say all the time, Easter is a pagan custom, etc., and that's as far as anyone ever explains it. They'll just say, well, there are eggs and there are rabbits. <laughs> <coughs> okay, so I really wanted to look at this, and so Easter originated as a day to commemorate the resurrection of Tammuz, a Sumerian Babylonian god believed to be the only begotten son of the moon goddess Ishtar, who was called the mother of God and queen of heaven. We'll see what happens to that title later. <laughs> and the sun god. So that's a depiction of Ishtar from that time period. And you can see from the depiction of Tammuz, uh, the depi early depictions of Jesus almost exactly repeat this. And uh, depictions of Osiris as well, the holding the, the Ankh. Can you all see that? He's got a cross up in his his hand. So this is a symbol early recognized as associated with um, Savior gods. Now, I never noticed this either. Acts chapter 12 recognized that Easter was celebrated in Israel before the church was founded. I never noticed this. Just read right over it. Now, about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. 
And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of the unleavened bread. And when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. Now you could read that as Easter for the church, but the church didn't have Easter. So you can't read it that way. And you have to read it that Herod was putting it off because of Easter. Yes? So we know that Herod is celebrating Easter, which means he's celebrating the birth of Thomas. Yes? From what we know of Herod, that's not anything strange. Herod was a Jew kind of in name only, but he also worshipped other gods. It's one of the reasons that John the Baptist liked the Herods so much. They were very syncretistic. They believed in kind of adapting to their environment. So Herod himself was celebrating Easter, the birth of Thomas. So we know, we have evidence that the birth of Thomas as Easter was celebrated in Jerusalem at this time as a pagan custom. And many cultures celebrated reborn gods at similar times. So Easter, the, the modern word Easter is named after Esther, or Astare, northern form of Astarte, which is the Babylonian Ishtar. So it carried all the way down into Germanic culture. Her sacred month was Aster Monoth, the moon of Aster. And if you've ever seen, oh, you know, the little Oster mixers and stuff, that's, that's her name. <laughs> all right, so she was a goddess, and her sacred animal was, of course, the, the moon hare, the rabbit. The Easter bunny was the moon hare sacred to the goddess. The Germans used to say that the moon hare would lay eggs for good children on Easter Eve. And by gosh, if you look at the moon, sometimes you can make out the outline of a, a rabbit. <laughs> Though the church uses a solar calendar, Easter shows its goddess roots, and that is decided on the lunar calendar. Lunar calendar actually makes more sense. I wish we went by it. Simple. 13 months, 28 days. Exactly parallel to women's cycles. And there's one day left over if you add that up, yes? So it's a year and a day, and if you've ever read any fairy tales, they will talk about that. And you've probably heard, I still remember hearing as a child someone say, I haven't seen you in a year and a day. Well, that comes from that time, from that culture. I always just thought that was just some sort of exaggerated poetic device, but that's how it worked. So Easter ends up as the first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring, <laughs> spring equinox. And as you know, I, my mother used to try to explain that to me. Uh, I'm like, what? And it's the only movable feast holiday. Christ, uh, December 25th is firm, but Easter is celebrated by the moon. And so it follows the way they dated the celebration for the Easter, the goddess. All right. Let me, before I get to that, one of the things that we forget in modern culture is that in the ancient world, if I said God, you could easily picture goddess or God. You didn't immediately go to male God. Some people worship female gods, and it didn't break down as to gender necessarily. Most women were attracted, of course, to goddess cultures because they had more role, and they could be priestesses, and they could be a part of uh, the ceremonies. 
so they were attracted to that, and you see that all through the Old Testament, the women baking stars to Ishtar and worshiping Ishtar. And you're like, why do people keep going that way? Why do they keep <coughs> falling for this? Well, for one thing, women had very little role in Judaism and very little role in Christianity. So women, of course, would be more attracted to these. And even today, a lot of women are attracted to these um, religions. <coughs> so for them, there was a sacred trinity. Most cultures had a sacred trinity, but it was a father, mother, and son, which, of course, is logical. So the world would be a product of a union of father, mother, and son. And usually the son literally is the son, the son God. Almost always is the son God. And we're going to see that Jesus early on, from the very beginnings, is associated with the son, the S-U-N. Today it's a pun, right? S-O-N, S-U-N in English, but it's not in the ancient languages. So it wasn't like they got confused between son and son. It's, he was associated with the son, and so we the church decided to celebrate his birth, I mean his uh, resurrection, on what day of the week? Sunday. Sunday. <laughs> okay, so they were more heavy. I, I had no idea the early church was so heavily influenced by this idea that Jesus was the son of righteousness. Literally, S-U-N. Okay. So that's related also to Jesus' birth. And so it's, I'm going to ask an odd question. Should Christians celebrate the birth of Jesus? Because it was a controversy at the beginning. The early writers, Irenaeus and Tertullian. Jim, you ever read Irenaeus and Tertullian? No, you haven't assigned me that. <laughs> I do have a book of the Christian fathers I could lend you. Um, but notice their dates. Very early on, neither one mentioned anything about celebrating Jesus' birth. The first one to mention that is Origen of Alexandria, and he scoffs. Only pagans worship, talk about the birth of their gods. So even though it's included, mentioned in Matthew and Luke, you can see why Mark and John left it out. It's not that big a deal in the ancient world. All right, but history shows that it was popularized not because Christ was born on that day, but because it was already popular pagan holiday. So let's look carefully at what happened. First of all, when the heck was he born? Okay, one of the first, so we just go back to the scriptures and look for clues. It says the shepherds were watching their flocks at night. There's two problems with that. One thing is in the winter, and Israel is nasty. It's not as nasty as here, <laughs> not as much snow, but it does rain and it's very cold. And you wouldn't sit out with your flocks at night. Plus, I have heard that shepherds, of course, watch their flocks at night, mostly when they're having their babies, which would be in the spring. So that suggests, just that one thing suggests that Jesus was born in the summer or early fall. Second detail that we get <coughs> is that it was the time of a census. What sensible king would ever put a census in the winter when roads are untravelable? So a census would most likely would be in the spring or summer when things were in summer more, most likely or maybe even fall. Censuses were not taken in winter when temperatures dropped. All right. Look to the Christian fathers. What did they think? As you, Hippolytus Champion January 2nd, and he figured Christ must have been born on a Wednesday. 
hang on to that. <laughs> Why Wednesday? Polycarp followed the same line of reasoning. And these, notice the Polycarp's earlier, and conclude that Christ's birth and baptism most likely occurred on a Wednesday because what? If you follow the biblical creation story, the sun was created on Wednesday. But of course, later on, whose day does this become? Woden's day. All right, so I put down here, Hang on to this association. <laughs> Christ's birth with the Son and with Wednesday. More to come. All right. So this is the most interesting one. Clement of Alexandria, another church father, he actually tells us how long he thinks it has been since Jesus' birth to his present time of writing. Isn't that interesting? And look at his early date here, 150. So he writes about 192. And he says it had been 194 years, one month, and 13 days. <laughs> That's pretty precise. Now, we don't really know how right or wrong he was, but what the heck, let's go with it. We end up with November 18th. And because the calendars had to be shifted because they were inaccurate, that leaves us with January 6th. Okay, so the early church, if they were, if they did anything to celebrate Jesus' birthday, they did it on January 6th. It was more logical, and partially because of his figuring, partially for other reasons. We'll see what some of the other reasons are. Our other clue. Now, I put a whole bunch of text on here simply because I plan to send this to you. We don't have to read all this at this time. But here's the summary of the clue. The clue is, we know that the Bible tells us that Jesus was conceived during at the six months the sixth month of John's conception pregnancy with Elizabeth. So if you add that up, all we have to do is figure out when her husband, Zacharias, was serving in Jerusalem, and it tells when it was, so we know the dates. So if we figure out the dates, now we don't know the year necessarily, but we know the time of year that it would be. So adding that all up, we end up with Jesus' birth was probably when? says the very last line. The end of September. Okay. Now, but, as we all know, are we really going to get the whole church to switch? <laughs> Probably not going to happen. So, what does that up to? Well, for about 300 years, there was no Christmas in Christianity. Which makes me very sad, having just celebrated it and how fun it is and how beautiful it is and all the decorations. Notice I got the 12 days of Christmas behind there. That's coming. All right, for the first three centuries of Christianity, they didn't have a December or anything. If they did celebrate it, they celebrated it at Epiphany. And Epiphany was originally uh, uh, seen as the day of the baptism of Jesus. But we've got some other things happening that are going to change all of that. Okay, the period between December 25th and January 6th are the 12 days of Christmas. How many arguments have you got into about are the 12 days before Christmas or after Christmas, but they're the time between December 25th and January 6th. All right. Why December 25th? 
Well, you have to think that the people that established this date were Romans, and they lived in a Roman culture. Yes, they lived in the Roman Empire. And Christianity had become the official Roman religion. Now, Origen was afraid that celebrating Christ's birth would make it a pagan holiday. He was right. The date they chose was already celebrated by the Romans. It's three different celebrations. One was Natalis Solus Invicti, the birth of the unconquered son, and we get nativity from the Latin. The birthday of Mithras, the son of righteousness, that was his title. It was, a it was an Iranian religion about 3,500 years old. Now, a lot of us don't know much about Mithraism now. Most people didn't know much about it then because it was a, it was a secret cult religion and it was males only. We do know that it hi highly influenced Romans and we'll see how influential it was. It's also a celebration of the winter solstice and notice that even our modern depiction still draws the winter solstice as a female. <coughs> so, as the one author said, seeing pagans were already exalting deities with some parallels to the true deity, church leaders decided to commandeer the date and introduce a new festival. As you know, it really didn't work very well because everything stayed. They just kind of took on different meanings. All right, first of all, it was the celebration of the birth of the sun god, Sol. Now, if, you had, if I hadn't told you that was the sun god, Sol, who would you have thought that was? Yeah, early depictions of Jesus very much look like this, and I can show you one. Jesus was even depicted as the sun god, Sol, about the same century, about the same time that, that December 25th and Jesus' birthday put together. I don't know if you can see that very well, but you can see over here, this is Jesus. He has the, the, the halo behind him in kind of a shape of a cross, and he's with the horses, which we traditionally, the sun god's chariot that pulls him across the sky. So this is about third century. See also with Mithras, there's a celebration of his birthday, December 25th. And uh, Mithras is there with Sol. Sol's there in the center. I can kind of do this, can't I? That'd be Mithras. <laughs> Very low-tech way of pointing at it. And early depictions of Jesus, very similar to Sol. Now, here's more interesting connections. The Mithrics, the Mithras uh, worshipped their god um, with a sacred meal, bread marked with a cross. I looked and looked and looked. And Mithraism, the trouble is that Mithraism and Christianity interact over time. So it's hard to say what Mithras believed and what they didn't. Plus, it was, as I said, a secret cult. Also, a lot of the scriptures were destroyed over time. It's hard to figure out what they believe. But what we do know of it is there are remarkable parallels between the two stories. Mithra is born on December 25th of, of God and a woman. In some stories and other stories, he's born out of a rock. We'll get to that in a second. <coughs> we also know that he um, began an earthly ministry, that he had 12 disciples, that he was crucified. It's debate on that. 
and then that he uh, was the resurrected God and that they were celebrated with seven sacraments. I'm like, wow, this is weirdly parallel. And a lot of people in the ancient culture were really upset with this and couldn't quite figure it out. We'll see what Augustine ended up saying about it. It was very interesting. The high priests were called Pater Patrum, which became Papa or Pope. So the high priest's name gets taken by Christians as the name of the exalted leader of the Christian church. I laughed out loud, though, when I found out that Pope means Papa, right? I just, that's so casual, <laughs> you know? Hey, Papa, <laughs> it's odd. <laughs> oh, Pater Patrum would be father of fathers, right? And then the Vatican was built, guess where? On Mithras Temple in Rome. So it's, it's very clear Christians were just putting themselves right on top of this other tradition. According to Robert Walker, St. Augustine declared the priests of Mithras worshiped the same deity he did. They were just getting a preview, according to him. So here are some of the parallels. So the Magi were actually priests of Mithra, which would make sense why in the Bible it would say that the Magi came to see Jesus and swear that he is the king. That would be really a kind of slap to Mithraism to say that the Mithras came. I was taught they were Zoroastrians, but the name seems too obvious of a connection. <coughs> so the date that the Magi came to visit the baby Mithra was January 6th. Ah, more connections. And now the church celebrates January 6th as the day the Magi came to see Jesus. Yeah. Because they're Romans. By this time, the church is, is has moved completely away from Jewish Jewish traditions. There, you know, a Christian Jew is extremely rare. By the time we get to this point, am I making any sense? Judaism has left Israel, and it left Judaism in the Book of Acts when they moved it to Antioch. and Christianity became a Gentile religion. So they didn't look to the Jewish roots. They modified it according to the culture they were in, which I guess is one of my major points, is that when the church defined itself, they used the terminologies and the customs and the traditions around them rather than going back. If they'd have gone back, they'd have kept Peshach, and we would still be worshiping on Saturday and Passover. Does that make sense? They didn't do that. Yeah, and of course, it does give them an identity apart from that. But of course, very close to Mithraism. All right, I already told you a bunch of things about Mithra. And of course, they worshiped on Sunday, baptism. They also baptized, they had a common meal. They celebrated mysteries. And some other things that they're similar. Let me go up. Um, the cosmology of Mithraism and Christianity are very similar. Man has a soul. It can be, it's an immortal soul, and you can go to heaven or hell in Mithraism. Um, there's judgment after death. 
the world is to be ended in a fire, and there will be a final conquest of evil. So, very, very similar. Now, this is what a, one Christian apologist said about Mithraism. Mithra appears to have lived an incarnate life on earth and suffered death for the good of mankind, an image symbolizing his resurrection being employed in his ceremonies. Tarsus, the home of St. Paul, was one of the great centers of his worship, being the chief city, city of the Sicilians, Cilicians, and there is a decided tinge of Mithraism in the epistles and the gospels. Designation of our Lord as the day spring from on high, the light, the sun of righteousness, and similar expressions are borrowed from or related to Mithraic phraseology. The words of St. Paul, they drank out of that spiritual rock, and that rock was Christ, are borrowed from the Mithraic sculptures, and that's one of the sculptures. <coughs> you see Mithra being born from a rock, and of course in Latin the rock is called Petra. Yes? And Christianity reinterprets that. Peter becomes Petra. Yes, but the idea of this rock and Jesus being born out of the rock. Now, <coughs> I don't find that particularly disturbing simply because, again, my point is, if you live in a particular time and culture, you speak the time of the culture, you use the images and the metaphors of the time and culture, and that's how it makes sense to you. Yes? Exactly. And he, again, though, if you look at things like even titles like King of Kings and Lord of Lords, these were the titles of all the kings in the Middle East. This, these were the titles, common titles. So again, to call Jesus the King of Kings or Lord of Lords is using the language already available in the culture. Am I making any sense? I guess I'm trying to say Christianity didn't, didn't just like spill out onto the planet with its own language and its own um, concepts or whatever, the, the people use the concepts, the language, the terminologies, the metaphors that were there in the culture. And so the Christ, the rock, goes back to the Judaism, but it also reflects his Roman culture. <laughs> like a message is coming through, but it's not too clear yet. I, a lot of Christian apologists have seen it that way, that God is continually sending this message about a sacred king, and then humans are picking up on it. But then finally the sacred king comes, and they recognize it because they've already heard the story. Does that make sense? Bingo. Here's the problem we have, that whenever you do that, you end up with a hybrid, and you end up with, okay, just like English is a Creole, Christianity is a Creole. It really is. If you go anywhere in the world, Christianity is not the same. If I go to Mexico right now, the worship is centered around Our Lady of Guadalupe, right? It's very much Mary-centered. Jesus is kind of off <laughs> to the side. It's not it, that important of a figure in Christianity in Mexico. So, from the very beginning, Christianity took, used the terminologies and the concepts of those, but at the price of 
kind of blending the two together so that a Mithraist might become a Christian, but they're still going to kind of bring that with them. Am I making any sense there? And I think Paul the same way. He's a Jew. He's a Greek. He's a Roman citizen. He grows up in the capital of Mithraism. So he's influenced by all of these things, and he makes sense of the world that way. I can't condemn him for that any, any more than I can say that I can stop thinking like an American of the 20th century, living in the 21st. <laughs> Does that make sense? All right. So Mithraism and its offshoot, Manichaeism, uh, were significant competitors with Christianity for about a thousand years. Isn't it funny? Because one of them won, we know nothing about the other. But that comes up next week. <laughs> and you can see that's why the canon becomes that argument. All right, so Christmas, officially the first official Christmas was in 336. Are you happy? You can tell each other that next Christmas. After Emperor Constantine had declared in the Christianity the empire's favored religion, there's one depiction of Constantine. There were still arguments, and of course, as you know, not all the church celebrates at the same time, right? The Eastern Orthodox Armenian. <coughs> but the Western church settled on the Epiphany for January 6th, as the arrival date of the Magi and dropped the whole thing that that was Jesus' baptism date. But other traditions keep January 6th as the baptism date. All right. I also wanted to look at the customs. Kind of go through this quickly. The gift giving and merry making come from Saturnalia, which is uh, worship of Saturn. Uh, which would be which day of the week? Saturn's day. <laughs> so the ancient Romans basically partied, and they didn't need much excuse to. <coughs> but what we get from them is that they relax their dress codes. I think it's funny because I tend to think that we dress up more at Christmas. But they dressed down, and they had some things I think we ought to bring back. We'll get to in a second. They used small gifts such as dolls, candles, and caged birds. I'm liking that. Of course, we le that leads up to like the partridge and the pear tree thing, but that's a whole way down the road. I like this part. This, it was an inversion of social roles. The wealthy were expected to pay the month's rent for those who couldn't afford it. Let's bring that one back. How popular would that be? Masters and slaves swapped clothes. That would be interesting. I might bring that back. Okay. Go to my class. You're the teachers. <laughs> Family wholesales through dice to determine who would become the temporary Saturnalian monarch. I, I still remember as a child there were customs about the Christmas king and somebody would be the king for the day. You remember any of this? And you had to tell stories. There's a little traces of that in Dickens. All right. So greenery came also from Saturnalia. They decorated their homes and temples with evergreen boughs because this was a symbol of hope that the trees, again, would turn green. But they weren't the only ones to do this. In Northern Europe, the Druids decorated their temples with evergreen boughs for the similar reasons. And the Vikings, we say the Vikings in Scandinavia, but the Vikings went all over the place, as we know, right? They founded Russia, for one thing. <laughs> 
Greenland, Iceland, and as invaded and um, became a crucial part of what we call England. Anytime you use the word skull and uh, skull and ski and Skype and yeah, they're all um, anything that begins with an SK. Those are all Viking words and a lot of the violent words, of course. <laughs> now, hang on to this. And they thought the evergreens were the special plant of the sun god, Balder. Hang on to this. Who is he? He's the sun god, and his name is Balder. Christmas trees. Now, some traditions, as I've found, say that Christmas trees are a Christian innovation. Well, guess what? Not really. But Christians kind of brought it back. And who did it? The Germans. Anybody German heritage, you're going to be excited today to realize Germans brought back Christmas. And if it weren't for Germans, we wouldn't celebrate Christmas probably in America now. Not the way we do. Okay, so the first ones were devout Christian Germans who dragged trees into their houses and decorated them. And the first one to light candles in the tree traditionally is Martin Luther who wanted to imitate the, sky, the night sky. the night sky. He saw how pretty the stars looked in the sky and thought between, you know, like looking through a tree to the stars and you want to imitate that. Late as the 1840s, Christmas trees were seen as pagan symbols in America. New England Puritans, as you could probably guess, wrote that they tried hard to stamp out pagan mockery of the observance, penalizing any frivolity. So no happiness on Christmas. 1659 enacted a law making observance of December 25th a penal offense. Holy smokes here. People were fined for hanging decorations. Just makes you proud to be an American, doesn't it? It continued in the 19th century when finally there were so many German and Irish people here that brought the traditions over from the old country that we began to get Christmas back in America. So if you're Irish, you can get excited about that too. Barbara Walker notes that Roman pagans cut down and decorated evergreen trees. So it's not specifically a Christian. And the reason that they thought it was a pagan thing to do is because um, most of the English, you know, the Druids and the Celtic peoples, they worshipped outside. They didn't create temples. And so they worshipped among trees, and so trees were seen as a pagan symbol. Okay, so other things. As I'm always told these things all came from paganism, but I never get the details. Do you? This one's pretty cool. Holly. Druids believed Holly was sacred to the mother goddess, Mother Holy. I don't know if you're familiar with your nurse, your uh, fairy tales, but there's one called Mother Holy. It signified death and regeneration. The red holly berries indicated female lifeblood. That's a depiction of Mother Holy. She lives underground, and by gosh, this answers the question. Remember when you were a kid and you're throwing a coin in a wishing well? Did it ever occur to you? Who am I wishing to? Mother Holy. Because any kind of wells or caves were associated with the mother goddess, Mother Earth. Yes, Erda was her name in some places, so we called her Mother Earth. <coughs> so, she still has a remnant in the Christmas celebrations. In the cult of Dionysus, female symbol Holly was braided with the male symbol Ivy and made into wreaths on doys to celebrate the solstice. The Holly in there, you started singing it, so do I. Love that song. Mistletoe. 
It's the golden ball of pagan belief. I didn't know this. You draw a mistletoe and it turns turns gold. Well, it's <laughs> supposedly it turns gold. <laughs> when I dried it, it usually looked kind of brown. But I've never really like hung it in a closet and officially dried it. It's just hung too long. This is an interesting thing. It symbolized the castration of the oak god. You've probably still heard that the, you're supposed to be very careful about cutting mistletoe out of a tree. You can't let it hit the ground. You ever heard this? And this is why. You don't want to tick off the oak god. The Nordic pagans believed it symbolized the death of the savior god. There we are, full circle. Balder, son of Odin, who was slain by a spear of mistletoe, Bahothor, Balder's blind twin. Balder remains in the underworld until doomsday when he will return and establish a new earth. So there's Odin, and you probably already see where I'm going to go. Who does Odin look like? Yeah, there you go. And there's a depiction of the slaying of Balder. Yule comes from Odin. One of Odin's names was Yule. There, see it, J-O-L. So as a feast celebrated in Northern Europe, Scandinavia, the Aurit Yolnir, another name for Odin. It's a feast of the dead in the time of ghosts, interestingly enough. And he was the god of intoxicating drink and ecstasy and the god of death, so that's why we've also associated it with serious imbibing with Christmas. And sadly enough, this is where Christmas ale comes from, from Odin. Now, I'm a big believer in Christmas ales, so. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, so then the Yule log also, you know, you get that that this also comes from a celebration. Interestingly enough that they believed in keeping the Yule log lit for 12 days. Another association with 12 somehow embedded in culture. All right, I'm just going to skip to the bottom part. Odin is a god of war and death, but also a god of poetry and wisdom. I'm liking that because, you know, today we kind of see, we don't see warriors as poets. But back then, the most noble heroes were gods of both. He hung for nine days, pierced by his own spear on the world tree. Yggdrasil. Um, and he did this in order to gain the secret of women's knowledge, which was language to learn the secret of the runes. And so he got it. The runes were carved on his chest. That sounds harsh. Plus he learned all the mag ma magic songs. I did not know this. He learned the sagas. Saga is the female form of the word sage, which means that the sagas originally were tales told by women. Wise women. I'm like, huh. Women get bad press all through history. We'll get that... I'll show you all kinds of things that happen to women. Like gossip used to mean a wise woman. So much for that. You can also see up there, look at that. If that doesn't look Christmassy, I don't know what does. All the decorations for Odin were done in red on white. And so we're already getting this association. He's also called Othan, Wadan, and Wotan. And so Wednesday bears his name. All right, the Norsemen were worshippers of Odin, and as you can see from all these big arrows, <laughs> I love this diagram, <laughs> they went everywhere. 
I don't know if you can make everything out, but they not only invaded the British Isles, they started off in the Northland, they went to Greenland, they actually went to America, as we know now. Um, they went all the way down into Turkey, into North Africa, and they founded Russia. Uh, and then Normandy means the land of the Norse. The, did you all know that? When we landed in Normandy, <laughs> and the Normans, of course, were Norsemen, so they were French-speaking, but yeah. Sure, but they got assimilated by the Vikings. They went there in huge numbers. You can, there's actually a, I want to go on this. There's a Viking river tour where you, it's literally a Viking river tour and you can go <laughs> through the rivers of Russia and you can visit all the cities they founded. But all the major cities were founded by Vikings. All right, so you can't have to go here, right? Odin and Santa look remarkably alike. And they looked remarkably alike until Coca-Cola actually kind of redesigned, revamped Santa into looking a whole lot more like Jim right now. <laughs> so Santa Claus is widely believed to be a mix of St. Nicholas and the god Odin. A lot of people say, well, it comes from St. Nicholas, but that almost doesn't make any sense because why did St. Nicholas do what he did? Why did he leave gifts and children, you know, for children on Christmas he didn't just come up with this idea. So again, it's kind of circular. So reasons to believe, Odin lives in the northern ice cap. Santa lives, of course, at the North Pole. Odin rides an eight-legged horse. And thanks to the poem, now look at that. Does that look Christmassy? I see that as a Christmas decoration, the Odin on the eight-legged horse. Um, until the guy wrote the poem about the eight tiny reindeer, he, Odin, Santa was seen mostly riding a horse, and you can still see pictures of him with a horse. So he rode the horse until it got changed to eight tiny reindeer. Why eight reindeer? The eight-legged horse. Odin was the lord over the Alfheim, the land of the elves. Ah, there comes the elves. You're like, why does Santa have elves? And Odin, after the last hunt, so the reason that it happened is Odin goes on his last hunt of the season, and then he's riding home to his home in the sky. And so they, the, the people, the pre-Christian people believe that Odin would bring toys and gifts and leave them for the children that they put out the shoes with the straw. And some cultures still do that. Scandinavian cultures still put out the shoes with the straw for Santa. So Santa brings good gifts to children. All right, so conclusions. Christians early on associated pagan Easter with celebrating Christ's resurrection. And in a lot of ways, it was less problematic than the Christian celebration, simply because, I mean, the Christmas celebration, simply because there were only a few things associated with it, not as many things. Easter was one singular goddess-worshiping day. But it was also seen as the symbolic day of resurrection of a lot of different gods like Thomas. It first read as in to celebrate Jesus' birth by the third century, the church attempted to supplant early religion customs on both holidays. But the answer, the efforts were not as random as many depictions of the process imply. I was always told the simplified, you know, like Christianity for Dummies version is, they took these holidays and overlaid them and made them Christian holidays, but it 
they didn't explain to me why it made so much sense to do that. All right, the dates are significant. Easter was already an established holiday celebrating um, a, a sacred savior king, a risen sacred king, and December 25th was already associated with resurrected solar deities and the birth of the sun god, the Roman soul and the Persian Mithras. And Sol and Mithras both had spring equinox celebrations, other subsequent rebirths. In later Norse culture, it was associated with Odin and his son Baldr, who was also a sacrificial god. And January 6th was associated with Jesus' baptism and the gifts of the Magi to Mithras. And of course, that led to the 12 days of Christmas. So what am I trying to say? Over time, terminologies, customs, and popular figures were incorporated and reinterpreted by Christians. Key terminologies were reinterpreted. The meaning of Easter is lost. Most of us don't know that was the name of a, a pagan goddess, actually Mother Earth. And many <coughs> Mary takes Ishtar's title as the Mother of God and Queen of Heaven. And terms like Son of Righteousness, Magi, Mass, and the Pope's title are taken from Mithraism. Sacred sites were taken over, and this happens all over Europe. Um, most, of you, well, in Europe, almost every church is named after Mary. And originally there were goddess cultures there that they put the churches on top of. So that's a lot of reason that a lot of them are named after Mary. The Vatican built, was built on the Temple of Mithras, and it occurs all over the empire to goddess temples. They adopted key aspects of celebrations without really any kind of redefinition. No one can really re-explain eggs as a Christian symbol. It just remains. Yes, it's just still there. I don't. I don't doubt that tradition. I know. Yes, that's their thing for saying that it's there. But if you look in Vatican documents, they still have all kinds of things. Some of these sculptures of Mithra, Mithra and stuff are there at Vatican. That's an interesting question. I don't know. That's an interesting question. Yeah. <laughs> I'll leave that to other people to figure out. But I do know that uh, two schools of thought, some people very strict say would say no, and other people, like I think C.S. Lewis would probably say yes, that anybody that was kind of on the right track. He, his belief was that knowing Jesus doesn't mean you know his name. And I kind of understand that in, in the sense that I can know you without knowing your name. We could be friends for years and, uh, and not know each other's names. So it kind of makes sense to me, that argument. Those would be, the, I don't know. I don't want to go down either road. Yeah. On the subject of Easter and <laughs> the connections and influences that, that developed from Mithra and, and any of these other influences,
Yeah. But I got another answer to that on here. <laughs> and it's coming at it from a different direction. Let me just say I agree with that. But when you come at it from a different direction, there's a different thing. Okay. The pagan associations were lessened by radical reinterpretations. The trinity of the sacred king was father, mother, son. It shifted to father, son. And spirit, as you know, a trinity was something argued over for centuries as well. Odin became Santa Claus. Basically, I think he did. And Mother Goddess Holly remains only in symbolic form, but she won, as one of my slides had, but I skipped accidentally. She won because we still call it a holy day. It's named after her. And we still call Holly Holly. So, in a sense, she's still there even in the words, which is another answer to your question. Since we're using words and concepts common to other religions and cultures there's no uh, in that sense a pure Christianity there may be you know these events are historical and claimed to be historically by the church which Mithras wasn't claimed to be historical it was claimed to be mythological am I making any sense yeah. it's kind of like when you try to figure out what happened historically on a certain date and you get eight different witnesses saying eight different things and we have that in the bible we have different witnesses saying things that are kind of hard to fit together in some ways, easy to fit together in others, and so you, you end up going like, what, they're the basics, but also from the beginning, they're already interpreted. Am I making any sense? Both things are true. So we know something happened. <coughs> there it is, it's on here. Mother Holly's Revenge is the term holiday. And the word holly and holy both come from her name. Okay, so I got more conclusions here. Early Christians associated Jesus with the Son far more than we do now, and that helps you understand why the 25th, why Easter. Rather than inventing new terminologies and concepts, Christians adapted and adopted the concepts and terminologies surrounding them. These interactions left holidays and customs shrunken, but mostly intact. Shrunken, by shrunken, I mean Odin becomes Santa. You know, the mother of God becomes marry a human mother in fact most of the fairies and saints and things are kind of distilled versions of, <laughs> of the previous gods um, struggles and so what I'm trying to say is struggles to find pure Christianity I think are pretty much pointless I, in my lifetime I've seen people try to start new churches we're going to be like the early church I'm like good luck with that <coughs> because the early church couldn't make up its mind about a lot of things and they were debating about a lot of things when languages and cultures meet, they're both changed, and this is true of Christianity. Like linguistic creoles, it exists now, influenced by Middle Eastern, Greek, Roman, Germanic, and Northern European cultures. It continues to change in other environments. 
Let me do this one last thing. So I want to ask those same questions I started with. Easter and Christmas were not Christian holidays that became secular or pagan. The exact opposite is true. So, should Christians celebrate Easter? I'm like, and my position is, why not? <laughs> it's now a Christian holiday. Let's face it, Christians celebrate Easter, but its true date is related to the Passover. So I tend to think uh, there's a mixed answer to that. If you want the true date, go with the Passover. Should Christians celebrate Christmas? Why not? <laughs> the date was set randomly, but if you're going to celebrate it at all, why not? And I'm a firm believer in that. My dad was born on Christmas Day, and we moved it to Christmas Eve because it seemed mean to try to do both on one day. And so you can move birthdays. I have a friend of mine that's born January 9th, and that's a terrible time to do anything. So sometimes we celebrate in, like, July when you can do something more fun. <laughs> Should Christmas complain that Christmas became secular? No, we need to just shut up and not complain about that anymore. It makes you look foolish. Should they complain that Christmas is too commercial? I think that even the Romans would be ticked off at the commercialization. They celebrated, believe it or not, even though they drank and you know partied in the streets, when you think about they exchanged birds and gifts and dolls and modest things, and that they did that exchange of identities, that was a pretty wonderful way to celebrate. So I think they would even be upset that, what, do you mean you're not paying the rent for somebody? So a lesson learned for me was people all over the world in different times, different cultures celebrated the magic. You hear this term a lot, the magic of Christmas. The magic of spring equinox and winter solstice, and all of them came up with giving, loving, and class-crossing activities, celebrating rebirth. That says a lot about us and a lot about hope for our future. So I think it's pretty cool that all of humanity picked these two times of year to treat each other differently. I like that. And to see each other differently. I'm all for that. I like, I don't know who said this. I don't remember who said this, but the, um, they say a myth is a story that's more than true. And the reason they s say that is because um, if I tell a story of something happened to me, it happened to me. But if I tell a mythological story, it happened to all of us. It means something to all of us. Am I making any sense? All of us have faced similar struggles. All of us have faced similar issues. So this tendency of humans to interpret the world over and over again in terms of death and rebirth, it makes sense. This is the environment that we live in. And we're just trying to make sense of it. At the same time, we're all on that same path. We all live lives of death and rebirth. I really want to get a copy of this stuff. How do we get it? I'll send it to Jim. You're welcome.